Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hi, this is Henry Gilra, co-executive producer of Star Wars Rebels. You're listening to Aggressive Negotiations. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Aggressive Negotiations. I'm so glad you're here and we are going to be welcoming back this week author Paul Duncan to talk about his book, Star Wars Archives 1999-2005. to So excited to be talking to him. Before we got into that, I just wanted to thank you so much for listening, and um, we'll be excited. This is a very special episode, and we'll actually be having another episode come out this week as well. So uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and Happy Holidays to all of you uh, as we uh, look to celebrate this week. But um, before we dive into the interview, just wanted to say, of course, you know, you can find us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Please do give us a star rating and review. Help people find the show uh, if you're on uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Uh, of course, you can find us all over the place, though, but Spotify, uh, Apple Music, all of those places. Uh, we're on Twitter, too. Please do follow us on Twitter at the Jedi Masters. We're on Facebook with the entire network uh, at facebook.com slash the nerd party. Of course, you can find us on the nerdparty.com and um, you can uh, go to the nerdparty.com slash contact if you would wish to send us an email about anything. So without further ado, I hope you will enjoy the interview I got to do with Paul here about Star Wars Archives. Was so excited uh, to have back on Aggressive Negotiations, Paul Duncan, who uh, has brought us his next edition of the Star Wars Archives, this time focusing on the prequel era. And uh, first, Paul, I just wanted to ask you, you know, the prequels are a series to which I don't think any really in-depth study has been done. We, we had some making of books back when they came out. But they were quite, which were great. Yeah, but they also were quite small comparatively to the things that we've had on the original trilogy. So, um, what was it like to dive into a realm that nobody's really gone in years, literally years? Uh, well, it was great fun. I mean, the, the the best part of making these books is uh, is just to dive in. You know, it's like a giant bubble pool. You know, that you just jump in, lots of balls, and you're playing, and you're having fun. And, uh, yeah, it's it's great. You know, it, the problem comes when you have to start sorting out which ones to include and which ones to get rid of. I mean, that, that's that's the real issue. The other issue with this um, is that there's just so much. Mm. It's um, – there's – there is so much um, – when you go into the different archives and you have a look at – how many 
folders or boxes or filing cabinets, etc., that they have, um, you know, say on F4 or F5 or F6, right? When you go on to X1, 2, and 3, like they increase exponentially, right? So the first problem you've got is volume, that there's so much more material. They're producing so many, for example, for the artwork, they were doing digital artwork, um, and they would they would work on it. They would do a nice image of, uh, you know, uh, Yoda or, uh, you know, some Wookiees or, or, or whatever, um, and then they'd print it out, right, and then they'd say, oh, um, let's do a variation on that. And so they would paint a variation and print out another one. So they sometimes you would have multiples. I remember especially on the uh, the spacecraft, there were like uh, sometimes they would have multiples of the same craft. It's just slightly different, you know. Um, the Jedi fighters was the classic one, where you'd have like just a few lines, you know, shaved off. You know, in terms of shape, etc., um, uh, and then you had like ten different colours, right? <laughs> and it all been, uh, um, and and you'd you'd see that they were actually doing, they were using the same base, right? But they're making a slight change, printing it off, and then changing the original file. So the original, you know, the, th- that version doesn't exist; only exists as a as a printout. And then George would make a you know, a selection, or, or I'll definitely have that one, or that's closer to what to what I want. Um, so in terms of diving in, it was great because you got to see all this process, these working processes. Um, but then the other difficulty was the fact that we were going into the computer age. Mm-hmm. So, so it meant now that in terms of production documentation, uh, all of a sudden it got very technical. Um, and I remember uh, I went into one of the archives and I opened up, you know, one of those folders. It's just white, etc. And it's got some like code on, on the front. And I open it up and it's literally, it's, it's like you've gone into the matrix, you know, where you've, it's just numbers. It's just lists of numbers. Oh, man. Um, where, they, where they were listing all of the, uh, every single um, VFX that you see, all the CG, um, every single one of them had a, a number, had a reference code, and parts that had reference codes. And this this really, really thick, it must be about 500 pages, was just numbers, oh, a wow. list of numbers upon numbers of numbers. You know, and it, it was like, all right, I've got, I've got to, I've got to find a way to make sense of this. <laughs> How do I translate this, you know, you know, to to a reader, you know, in order to try and help, you know, um, help them understand? First of all, I have to help myself to understand, right. you know, what does this mean? What is this? You know, so that that was the initial euphoria, um, followed by uh, reality setting in. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I I always think of, you know, with the the prequel trilogy is just, I mean, the the sheer amount of um, story expansion, you know, because there's so much more happening in that series than the original trilogy 
Uh, there's so many more planets. There's so many more characters. And, and the world itself is much bigger. I mean, George even talks about that in the interviews um, that you had with him where, you know, the original trilogy takes place in a much smaller context, you know, uh, on the fringes of, of, you know, galactic space in the Star Wars universe, whereas this is taking place at the main heart and center of the Star Wars galaxy. And so everything is so much bigger. And I can only imagine, like you're talking about going through all this material because they're designing everything. I mean, you know, everything has to be designed. Everything has to be laid out. And then even story-wise, everything has to to be put together. And there's just so much material. I mean, George himself even ran into this because he had to do the Clone Wars to tell the Clone Wars story because he couldn't fit it into the movies because it was too much. Yeah, I mean, um, when I'm doing the uh, layouts for the book, um, what, the first thing I do is that I break down the script into uh, each scene. So I take the screen and I, um, uh, the scene, the screenplay, and you can see the number of scenes. All right. So for X4, 5, and 6, they were generally about the same number of scenes. Mm-hmm. So I knew when I was doing the layout that, okay, I can do a certain number of spreads on each scene. Yeah. Um, when I came to the prequels, it was like, oh, it's just tripled or quadrupled, you know, when I broke it down. That the the jumping, the number of characters, the jumping between the characters, the jumping between the worlds, um, and then the uh, env- the different environments within those worlds, because there's always more than yes. one scene, <laughs> and, they're, and, they're, and they're moving within the environment, yeah? So you've always got all these corridors. You've got these linking bits and pieces where you, you're seeing a little bit. So again, this exponential um, um, volume in terms of uh, design um, is is the same in, in terms of number of scenes. So yeah, it must have been very daunting, but it also meant that in the in this in a strange sort of way that I had to, if you like, uh, I have to, I had to be more alert in, ter- in, in terms of the editing process about what to include and what, what not to include. Um, and in fact, that, that was, you know, very difficult because I, I realized that there are certain uh, key scenes or key moments that you, you want to have in there. And suddenly I was finding, oh, maybe I can't have every single scene in the book and uh, and then it became oh i just found this really cool scene that wasn't that was storyboarded but not in the movie all right i need to include that so if i'm going to include that what am i going to take take out because i want to show for example um in phantom menace and um, you've got the um the scene that the Darth Maul, the big fight with Darth right. Maul, and um, at the end, and originally, um, Benton Jew did storyboards for a, a completely different, if you like, uh, uh, fight. You know, or the way that the fight unfolded was completely mm-hmm. different within the environment. Yeah, it was crazy. And I mean, there's so much detail to it in those those storyboards. That was really neat to see. Yeah, well, I I thought, well, I've got to include them all in there. Because 
you know, there's a whole page with, I think, 36 or something of these storyboards so that you can follow it, yeah? And, uh, um, you know, so I knew that, okay, I want to include the fight. The fight is a major part. I'm putting as many pieces in there as I can. But there are some things, well, I've got to make space for this. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so the volume um, was great, um, uh, but also, it, you know, that that was the uh, the trade off, you know, in this sort of which parts am I going to am I going to show? You know. Well, and it, it's so funny you say that because you know, in in the book specifically, in one of the most interesting. Um, places where you were uh, talking with George and and it, I, I really liked that you asked these questions because they're questions that I think I would have probably asked George myself uh, and I'm specifically thinking of a volume uh, didn't you supply the questions for me <laughs> I, oh man is it that Okay, are we going to reveal that oh, man. the first time? I yeah. totally, I mean, that's my dream is to interview him one day. Uh, but so specifically in episode two, you know, just talking about this idea of volume and volume of story, yeah. um, you know, you pressed him on why he didn't include the mm-hmm. scenes with Padme and Anakin visiting Padme's family. And I really appreciated yeah, that yeah. you did that because, and I think this shows... Um, in many ways, George has always talked about this idea that he, for him, Star Wars isn't precious like it is to us fans. He's trying to legitimately, as he says over and over, he's just trying to make good movies. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, he's very judicious with the time and movies. And um, I think mm-hmm. it's one of the things that w- there's as much I I'm I you couldn't find a bigger George Lucas fan, but he's not perfect, and so there are some things where I would disagree with him. And I in that moment was as you're talking about your struggle of what to inter, you know put into the book. George is having that same yeah. issue with all three of these movies, and especially I found uh, episode two where there were things that he felt like he had to cut out because it was just there was there was too much and so uh, it was interesting that you both basically went through the same struggle with the prequels well the, the first thing i want to say is that um you know george loves star wars i oh, mean absolutely he, nobody he loves, loves star it, wars it, more it, than he, he does he, he he adores it and it is painful for him <laughs> to to take stuff out but but um and the reason that i um i pushed him on that um, you know about the home scenes, and also in in that three, where there are uh, lots, there are scenes where the foundations of the rebellion yes, yes, are, yeah. are coming up, and 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 there were a few other scenes in there that sort of got lost uh, in the mix, and um, and ultimately it, they're painful for George, but also as as a storyteller, he's saying, well, what's going to have What's the most important thing, right? Is it important? We, you know, there's information. There's a difference between the information we already know, yeah. So we already know stuff. We already know that Padme is is selfless, yeah, right. We already know how she operates in um, uh, in Ep One. You know, where you see how diplomatic she is. She says, okay. We have to find a solution together, right? That's why she goes to the to the Senate. That's why she asks the question and she asks for them help their help. And it's only when they refuse help that she can that she goes back that she goes back to Naboo, 
and she she makes friends um, uh, with the Gungans. Yeah. So, um, so we already know that. There's, we don't need to see her family, right? And I think that what what it was doing for for George, he was slowing it down. He didn't have the time to include it, and it was information we already knew. You know, so, um, and I think also there's a, another aspect which is this idea of number of scenes and going back and forth. In the edit, they were finding that certain scenes, because um, if you have a look in the original script, the order of the scenes going back and forth is different than how it is in the uh, in the final movie. And it's the same with episode three as well. Um, and uh, and that order all comes out in the edit and how it looks and feels as they're doing it. So they're having to rewrite the story as they're making it. So in the same way that any author will write and rewrite and there will be their favourite... I mean, it was um, Faulkner, I said, I think, who said, um, you know, sometimes you've got to kill your darlings, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, or he wrote it. And, um, but luckily he didn't kill that line. Um, but the, but the, the thing is that sometimes you have to do that. And George recognizes that. Right. Um, because he needs to tell that story. And I, I think this is the, this is, George is very, um, uh, he's lovely and he's very, um, reserved, right? And, um, and he will sort of, just slide off a question and say, oh, yeah, well, it's just something we had to do, yeah? Because he understands, as a practical filmmaker, it's something that he has has to do. But the reason I pressed him on this was exactly in order to get the reaction I got from him, for him to explain a little bit more detail. Um, yeah, so, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, and I, I think... You know, it is a question that many fans have had over the years, um, and I, I think one of the things, again, it it becomes very interesting to me then that he dives into the world of, of animation after the, the prequel trilogy so that he can expound on a lot of this that he doesn't get time to play with, and it really gives him that time to add a lot of nuance and, and, and things to the storylines that because this is the Skywalker trilogy, you know, this, this is part of the Skywalker saga – those bits and pieces, while interesting, like you said, they're not information about what's happening with Anakin Skywalker and his downfall there. Uh, and and that's where George is really making sure that he's keying in. He's trying to get all those really important moments for that. He, go, he goes back to play later on. Uh, and I think, you know, when you understand that, it makes sense then why the prequel trilogy looks the way it does, because he's really trying to tell that story. Yeah, I, yeah he's not. The, the thing is that George, you know, for, for every idea that's on the screen, George has probably got a thousand more <laughs> that he didn't have space to include. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember there was, um, I, I think it's in the, in, in the book where George was talking to, it may have been Dennis Muir and maybe somebody else. I think it's in the, in the book. Um, and they were just mentioning about the, the globes that the, uh, the Gungans have. And uh, uh, and George just went off. He just started talking. Um, in just giving all the background, saying where the globes have come from, where they've been mined, 
how it'd been done, how they were transported, um, you know, chemical components. He, he was like, he knew everything there was to know about them. Uh, and they just turn up. They just turn up in the, in the movie. But they also, they're linked to the technology that the Gungans have and how they operate uh, and ha- how they live. So, so for, for George, it's not just what you see on the screen. Uh, he said, uh, I think in, in one of the interviews, either in this book or, or, or the previous, uh, where when he's writing, right, it's like he goes into that world, right, he imagines himself walking around in that world. He goes through these doors and he sees where the doors lead. And, and then he finds things there. And then so that he knows what's behind each of the doors, you know, uh, in, in all of these these worlds, even though we've not seen them. So really, it's great, I think, that he went on to do uh, the Clone Wars and all these other projects, uh, because I think that they uh, they really, um, they allow him to dig deeper, you know, for power globes or for Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioning that is one of the things that is what makes Star Wars so... Um realistic and and i obviously in quotes it's there's nothing realistic about star wars but it feels like it because george when he puts something on screen you know he could explain to you why it's there and so there's this this intricacy to the the layout of the world that makes sense to us in our brains because it it seems to fit so organically together with what's being put on screen and and that comes from the best of creators you know whether it's tolkien or you know any of the others who have created a world to which you can just kind of fall into i think of uh, uh rowling's harry potter as well you know everything feels so organic to that world and frank herbert's doom. yeah yeah frank herbert's doing as well yeah yeah i mean i think um i, I think it's sort of um uh, if we can mention the M word, uh, midichlorians, um, I think it's sort of unfortunate um, uh, for George in that he's, there are so many of his ideas that he mm-hmm. wants to include, right? And uh, if 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 Frank Herbert had included midichlorians or if Philip K. Dick had midichlorians or, or Asimov or... Um, you know, or Tolkien or, or any of these, uh, and they were allowed to develop it within the context of, of that world. Um, it, it, would, they w- it would have been accepted. There wouldn't have been, been a problem. But the, but the problem George has is that, uh, again, it's this idea of time and editing that he, he only, if you just, if you, if you show a little bit, it's not enough, you know, because you have to have the space to show the whole story, the whole, uh, the whole reasoning behind it. And I remember um, George saying that when he was introducing the uh, the lightsaber, for example, uh, the, the first time you see a lightsaber is when uh, Ben gives gives one to to Luke, all right, and you see it operate, right. But you don't really, you know, it's just a lightsaber. What, what is it? Yeah. By the time you, the next time you see it, it's in the cantina, right? And then Ben cuts somebody's arm off with it, and you go, oh, 
this is pretty handy. Yeah. All right. And then you see Luke being trained. Right. With the lightsaber. And then the next time we see it, it's, uh, it's Ben versus, uh, Vader. Yeah. So, so the thing is that the idea of the lightsaber, the concept has been explained and it's been shown that the reason for it is, is, is there and also ultimately what it can be used for. So, so he's introduced the force, lightsabers, Jedis, you know, the light and the dark, you know, and had a whole complete story within that framework, right? Um, but it's very, very difficult to weave those sort of things into um, into these narratives. And I think that um, uh, ultimately, I think the the original question is all this information. Uh, the thing is, George has so much more that he wants to share, um, or wanted to share at that at that time. Uh, and you know, the, you know, we only got a fraction a fraction. Of uh, of what he's got in his head, but uh, but I'm glad for that. Yeah, that we got. I mean, you know, it, it is interesting that you bring up the midichlorians because George does with you. He goes into some detail uh, about what the midichlorians are, what uh, the yeah. the wills, and the wills are, and, well. and what I I found so fascinating is how organically it works in the Star Wars universe, and it doesn't, you know, uh, what as he was describing it. What the Jedi are doing in spe- specifically episode one is quote unquote kind of this scientific thing, but yet there's so much more depth to it. They're they're they have a very even even the Jedi have this very crude way of like trying to get at like how many midichlorians a person has, and yet there's so much more depth to it that it, it's as he keeps talking it's like there's there's a ton of mythology back into this it's it's it feels so much more uh, fantasy than it does science and yet it is based on something that we have in our own world and and so it's like i'm i'm right there with you it is disappointing that fans reacted so poorly to an a very interesting idea for star wars because you know, for him, he was getting at what is the the very essence of life in the Star Wars universe, and that's not just a scientific question. That is a spiritual question, and the Jedi are spiritual beings, and so is the Force. And so, I I, I think people kind of misconstrue that idea, and it's it's too bad because it to me, as a fan who just loves knowing more about Star Wars, um. That's a fascinating thing that he's combining this idea of like science and faith. They're not necessarily at odds. They work together to help explain something that we can't explain. Well, uh, isn't it? Um, I, mean, I mean, George is um, talking about my, my mitochondria. You know, so if you if you look at the biology, you know, the real biology in our lives, you'll see that he's just he's reusing things that are already there. You know, so. Um, uh, but he's giving it a slight twist, you know, with, with the force and um, being mystical, etc. Uh, and I think also you've got to look at the Jedi as being um, more practical. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they're trying to, they're saying, well, uh, how do we measure the force? How do we find out if somebody has the force? You know, and they've taken this scientific means in order to, you know, to do a test. A simple test, 
an indicator, you know. And the person still, you know, still has to be trained, you know, in order to use the force. As George George says, you can't just, just because you've got the force, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, you can use it. You've got to have, uh, uh, you've got to have training over a long period of time, you know, in order, in order to master it. I think another aspect of that is that, uh, I mean, even in uh, reality, don't, don't Buddhists, don't they study the mind, the actual biology of the mind in order to try and, uh, you know, I mean, even within uh, our modern, you know, real life religions, uh, yeah. they want to, they want to measure and find out how, how our, our bodies and our minds work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so that we can better understand ourselves in order that we can control ourselves because this is what it's all about, you know. Um, I mean, you think so, of uh, some of the greatest scientists in the world uh, from, from you know, past history were Christians, you know. Uh, sure. They, you know, they, they want, because they wanted to better understand and they believed they could better understand the world God had created. So, yeah, absolutely, I, you know. You, it, it's not it, there isn't necessarily we we tend to put it as it there's a there is a um a divide between the two but you know all all, all major religions are seeking to understand the world that they are a part of sure uh, and uh you know and uh and i go back to my original point which is that um uh if george uh, had uh, if george had written it down in the novel <laughs> You know, that was like a thousand pages thick or whatever. And, um, you know, and explained all the background or whatever. Um, then, you know, I'm sure there wouldn't have been a single problem. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, if he had done what Hebert did with Dune, I mean, and I just yeah, finished yeah, yeah. all of, of his original Dune novels. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. so absolutely, if that had been the case, it, it would have been much different than trying to put it on yeah, film yeah. where you've got ma- around two hours, you know, at 2.30 at the most for George, so. Yeah, but I think there's another aspect of this as well, which is that um, the Star Wars movies... Uh, really, they tap into the idea of space opera. You know, yes. Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, John Carter, all, all these, you know, iconic um, space fantasy novels, etc., um, turned into. And he, he made it into a, a movie. And generally, these are not really considered uh, serious, right? And I think that... Um, a lot of people don't think there's anything more to them than that. Um, and I think maybe the idea of these midichlorians or whatever other things that George introduces, um, people are starting to think, well, maybe he's taking it a bit too seriously. It's only space opera, you know. And uh, and I think that over the, the course of the, the two books, what I've tried to get from George is the idea that he did have, he did intend more to them, you know, in the same way that I suppose in America you have people like uh, Dr. Zeus and Mr. Rogers, etc., uh, telling stories to children um, and interacting with them, uh, but actually having a, a serious um, uh, uh, message behind them. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a great um, point. And and I think really George falls into that category 
He's about life lessons for the young. They're about life lessons for the young, you know, and not um, um, uh, and not holding back, you know, of saying that there are tough things that will happen. There are dramatic things. There are times when you're going to be hurt. There are going to be difficult, difficult things for you to do, you know, and to see and to hear. Um, but you you have to learn how to get to get through them. Um, and and these are, you know, and this is, and I think ultimately the idea of the books is to get to that point, to to help people understand that the stories operate in a particular way, the characters act in a particular way, all right, in order to tell that story, you know, in order to tell stories that will help 12-year-olds uh, and younger and older um uh, in order to get through their lives in a simple way that we can all yeah. understand. Well, I mean, that goes I, all the way back. I have the George Lucas interviews book. Um, sure. And, you know, uh, one of George's very first interviews was with, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, you know, uh, he, he says, I believe that there's a God. I believe that there's a right and a wrong and that when you follow mm-hmm. what is right, that, that life generally turns out better. And that's the message of Star Wars, you know? And so that's the simple, like, if you boil it all down, that's what he's getting to. And one of the messages, and you were kind of touching on this, the idea, it, it flows from the idea of midi-chlorians, right? We, we can figure out that somebody has talent, talent for the yeah. Force. And, that, and yet for George, regardless of the fact that you have talent, you still have to have the training and the wisdom needs to be passed on from those who have experienced and lived life before you. And in some of those ways, it kind of comes down to those ideas, you know, train up a child and the way he should go. I mean, you think of, um, you know, uh, St. Paul talking about the same ideas in uh, in some of his letters where he talks about younger men need to learn from the older men and the younger women mm. need to learn from the older women and that we're there's there's meant to be this mentorship there's meant to be this training and george is i mean and the prequels are just rife with this idea and then of course the the sequel or the original trilogy then if you're watching them in order picks up on that too is that we're we're trying to keep the um the younger generation from making the same mistakes we did and and pass on knowledge that'll help them then also surpass us as well and and that's i think a really beautiful message especially in the world that we live today but he shows failure he yes, shows exactly he, he shows that it doesn't happen i mean ben kenobi takes over from Quigon, you know and uh, and basically he, he messes it up um, he doesn't pay attention. He treats him more like a like a friend than as a mentor, maybe. Um, you know, he, he takes the, his his eye off the, the ball, and you know, he he basically he messes up, and that's his burden, if you like. You know, that's the thing that he's he's you know he's going out into the desert to look after Luke, in in order to make sure that. Hopefully it doesn't happen happen again. You know, he doesn't train him, you know, as a youngster, right? Because maybe, I mean, th- this is my supposition. That's not George or anything. But I'm just reading into it. Well, he's, he's afraid of maybe messing up again. You know, mm. I mean, it, yeah. you know, this, this, and I think that this idea of, uh, of mentorship is, is, is there. And the fathers and the false fathers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 
and at the end of the uh, of the prequels book, I mean, this is this is why I talk about fathers and generations, etc. Yes, and because um, because ultimately, um, if you're a father or a mentor, there's a point at which you have to let go. Yes, all right. And you, you have to let that person, the person you've been mentoring or fathering, they have to live their own life. They have to take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah. There's yep. a, there's a point at which you cannot, um, uh, you cannot be responsible. Yeah. Right. Uh, even though you may feel it. Yep. So, um, you know, so these are, these are issues that we all face in our lives growing up. And George is putting it in a context, a very dramatic context. Um, but, but the overall message is that we are all connected uh, in some way. So the, the midichlorians, they're just part of, of a chain with the wills uh, and with us and with all living things, right, um, which we call, you know, the force or, or whatever. Uh, they're all connected by the force, and we all interact, and we're all um, uh, we're all we're all symbionts. You know, there's a symbiotic yes. relationship between everything. Now, I have to say, when I first saw these movies when they came out, I completely missed the idea of uh, symbionts and symbiotic relationships. And it was only when I um, uh, looked at them again, you know, admittedly much older. You know, having read a bit more, lived life a bit more, and that I uh, that I started to read the film in a different way. And um, of course, when I brought up with George, it was like, yeah, of course. You know, it was like, I mean, he that that's the whole the whole point of all of Star Wars is that it's all about symbiotic relationships. So, for example. Um, Padme, she goes back to Naboo, right? And she, the Gungans and Naboo are separate, and she brings them together in order to uh, in order to make a whole within the uh, planet, in, in order to make a culture that lives together and works together and fights together against a, a, a common enemy, right? And I think this is why the first film is important. Because the first film tells you, right, it gives you the clue for the rest of the series, right? It's telling you that Padme, that's how Padme operates, right? She's democratic. Uh, she goes to the Senate, as I said. She takes everybody's point of view. She doesn't act alone, right? She acts with the support of others, right? That's the way Leah works, yeah? I mean, obviously she's a bit bossy, but ultimately <laughs> she works. She works within, you know, within that context of the rebellion, within a group of people. Yeah. And some people are going to have different ideas. They're going to mash them out and then they'll come up with a plan of action. Um, but you see Anakin right at the beginning, it's played for laughs. But if you have a look, Virtually everything he does in that movie, he does alone, right? With R2, ironically, um, uh, 
you know, he's more comfortable working with machines. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, uh, but if you see uh, at the end, it's played for laughs, right? But, but he, he single handedly, yeah, goes in, destroys the, the ship. Um, and then, and that's it. He's not working as part of a group. It's, it's even like in at the end of uh, Ep 4, when Luke is going in, he's working as part of a group. Yeah. Biggs and everybody else are supporting him, holding off the attack so that he can go in for his, his bomb run. Yeah. Working as a team. So, um, so I think that these, these are, even though, um, uh, even though these things are not explicitly told, yeah, in the, in the sense of some, somebody says, Oh, Anakin, he works alone, <laughs> you know, and Padme, she works, you know, she's a team, uh, team player. Even though those sort of things aren't explicitly pointed out so that you understand the characters, the act, how the characters act is important because they tell you who the people are. And if you follow that throughout the whole, um, uh, throughout the whole series, right, it leads to a much better understanding uh, of what the characters represent and when they act in a symbiotic or non-symbiotic uh, way. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I love about the prequel trilogy. And I think, you know, George even mentioned in one of your interviews with him that, you know, the, the prequel trilogy has a, is much more mythological and, and much more grand than the original trilogy. And, and part of that is what's happening, which is, you know, how does a good person become bad? Um, and then how does, how does a, uh, you know, a democracy and a republic fall into a dictatorship? And those are, those are really big themes, especially in, in throughout history from Rome onwards. And you, you, you're watching this play out. And so it is really big. It's, 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 it's like you were saying, it's operatic and the biggest message of Star Wars is, are you going to live the selfless life or are you going to live the selfish life? And we see that play out is that the Republic falls because everybody just starts trying to get what they is quote unquote theirs instead of worrying about the relationships that we have between one another. And it makes for such a dynamic story. Uh, and, and to me, in all, in all honesty, um, even though episode five is still my favorite Star Wars movie, Overall, the prequel trilogy is the one that I gravitate towards more just because there's so much more to be able to think about internally, you know, and, and to be able to process and you keep processing these ideas. And to me, I think that's one of the things that we've seen uh, in fandom is we're, we're, we're as time progresses, more and more people are starting to appreciate what George was doing in the prequel trilogy. Uh, and I think that's really wonderful to see. And this book, I think, really helps in that process to be able to understand where he was coming from. Why is he telling these stories? What was important to him? And and all of those things. And, and many of us fans have been able to piece that together. But I think this makes it so much more blatant. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit just because obviously uh, this book goes from 99 uh, to 2005. But one of the things you do is actually start a little bit before 99 and and the genesis sure. of um, 
the prequel trilogy for George, which actually you you start with the um, uh, often maligned <laughs> special <laughs> editions, and it was really fascinating to see how you know as technology has been so important to George and his filmmaking, how technology is something that inspires him to be creative, to allow his imagination to just fully overflow. So I loved that you actually started with um, that because it's such an important uh, aspect to the story of how the prequels come to be. Yeah, I think that um, those two things that I really learned uh, on the special editions, I mean, really, uh, that first chapter, even though all the images are, uh, about the special editions, it's about the history of CG visual effects. Yes, yeah. You know, and 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 I thought it was important to show that it wasn't that George couldn't imagine stuff. It's that <laughs> <laughs> it's that George could imagine plenty, um, but you know there wasn't the technology around you know that could match his imagination, and uh, so just as he started ILM in order to do uh, Ep4 um, so that there was somebody, you know, in Hollywood who could actually um, um, uh, make the material or try to develop it. Because remember, that that was cutting-edge technology then. You know, they had to invent it uh, in order to, to, to make the movie. Well, it was the same, you know, in the 20 years following that he, he ILM basically... Uh, sometimes reluctantly, because there were people within ILM who didn't really take to CG or, or computer technology and still wanted to go do old-school um, uh, uh, effects, which are great. You know, they all have their old, you know, their old pros and cons. Um, uh, but he needed that technology in order to 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 develop it. So the, the first thing that I thought was interesting was that George put in so much money, time and effort, and also persuaded uh, so many companies around the world to put in so much money, time and effort without contracts um, in order to, to make these movies. You know, the, um, uh, I think they, uh, George and also um, uh, Rick McCallum, they, I think they quoted $60 million or something was yes. invested. It was insane. You know, yeah, and w- with no contract, all on word of, you know, on, on people's words, yeah, um, uh, which is very important, I think, for George, you know, for for people to be trustworthy, you take them at their, their word, their um, loyalty, etc. These are all very important virtues within the movies, you know, and, um, uh, and in life, you know, and um, so... So there was that aspect of it, which I thought was fascinating. And I uh, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Dennis Muran and John Knoll um, and to interview them in order to get information about this and Ben Burt as well on the editing side, because it isn't just VFX. It's every aspect yes. of the filmmaking process. Pre-production, production and post-production, um, pixel in through the camera, everything you have to do through editing, sound, uh, the image, the manipulation of the image, uh, and then going out through a digital projector. Um, so it's pixel in to pixel out. And every th- aspect of that had to be invented. Uh, you had to have a flow of information 
so that the images matched um, uh, the production rates. Uh, you had to have, I mean, they were doing stuff that was not approved um, within the industry, right? And they were pushing so far ahead that the industry had to catch up with them and eventually approve some of their, their practices afterwards, I think. So um, so if you look at the IEEE um, um, uh, certificates, you know, and uh, that they have within the industry, um, you, you'll see the, the dates, etc. And I was searching through those as well as people were telling me about them. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- that's incredible. That's one aspect of it which I thought was was fascinating. The other aspect, um, and I think that this is sort of lost in the in all the you know um, the debate, shall we call it, um, about the special editions, is that essentially those films were on the verge of being lost. The the the, the F four, right? If if they had not restored that that uh, those original um, films at that time. 20 years later, all those originals um, and that film would have been effectively lost. They would have had to refilm the whole thing, you know, or find a way to recapture it. Because the original negative, they had all the VFX um, that they had, which was done by optical printing, which is by putting several images together. So you've got multiple generations of of images being pressed together. Uh, There was so much dirt on it, on the originals, right? Because they've been printed up so quickly and the prints have been rushed through. Um, the stock had degraded. Um, you know, it was, it was a complete mess. And uh, if George hadn't made an uh, inhibition print, which is a special printing technology, and kept it in his vault, they wouldn't even know what colours things would, should have been, you know. Wow. So... So what I'm saying is that this, the special editions saved Star Wars in, in, in another way, you know, um, because uh, without them, they wouldn't have been alerted to how bad um, the, uh, the original next were. Yeah. So I, I, re- I, I remember reading that and I was just thinking to myself, that is such a bit of film felicity that that is the case you know that that george has this idea to celebrate the the uh the 20th anniversary and uh to to go back and kind of do some things that he hadn't gotten to do before but that he's also you know he's playing around with where technology is to see where it goes and one of the things that you know is we were talking about this idea of of um symbiosis i think one of the beauties of and and one of the things that i appreciate so much about george lucas himself is that he lives out that in his own life for him he's been about giving back to film and him pushing forward and being that visionary willing to take those steps um he's not just doing it for himself he obviously wants to tell his stories but he also loves film and he wants to continue to push it forward and 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 make it whatever it's going to be next. He's not just willing to be stuck in the past. He's thinking about the future. And and so much of his money, his own money, has been about pouring back into this thing that he loves because he's he's willing to do that. And there's an unselfishness there in him about that. And I think 
that's the thing that I've always appreciated that about them is he literally is somebody who puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah, I mean, he's um, there are givers in this world and there are takers, and George is a giver, you know. So, uh, I mean, it's obviously for him, right? Um, he's looking at it and he's saying, well, I need to do this. How am I going to make this happen? And he gets the best people around um, and he puts them together and he says, you know, have a go. And he gives them the freedom to do that. And I think this is one aspect of collaboration that perhaps people don't understand is that George is giving um, is giving people the freedom to experiment and to and to follow a line of thought, even if that line of thought leads nowhere. Right. At least it's been explored. I mean, I remember Dennis Moran saying that um, he didn't know anything about computers so so george basically you know sort of said well get a mac and learn how to do it right and you know so we just had you know dennis said yeah i just had time off to try and learn all this code and these things and uh, i think ultimately uh, he didn't learn everything he needed to learn but he knew enough to know what was important and what wasn't important. He right. knew enough about it. So in other words, um, George is always about education and learning, right? Because it's only through education, right, that you can take the next step on, you know, uh, which he does actually through, a, a, I mean, in life, in real life. Um, do you know about um, Edutopia? His uh, charity, his charity. I, I've heard a little bit about it, but I, I don't know a ton about well, it. I, well, when, when I was at the ranch, they had like 25 year anniversary, <laughs> you know, dinner. You know. So what these people do is this is these are people who actually set up. It's an educational foundation. Right. Uh, and they provide materials to help teachers, to help children how to learn. Right. So for George, education is is a big, big thing. You know, for him, it's like if if you know if you need to learn something, right? I will help you learn it. Mm. When they were doing the concept art, um, Ryan Church and Eric Tiemans and all all, all the rest of the team, uh, they, they would tell me, oh yeah, George would do. We had a, anything we needed. There's there's an enormous reference library in, yes. in the main house. In, yeah, on, I've on been the there. It's incredible. Yeah, and um, uh, they they. They have free hand to go down there, research, find stuff, or have researchers look for things, you know, for any inspiration that they needed. If they needed to teach themselves something, you know, they had the time and the resources there. Um, they even had somebody there to teach them how to think differently, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to you know, they, they would bring, um, uh, I think Eric was talking about, Oh yeah, we got some paper towels and made them wet, and we rubbed them on the carpet and we put them in the dark. Yes. And this fungus, yes. and this fungus would grow, and then we drew the fungus. Yes, <laughs> you know, that was uh, hilarious. Yeah, I mean, because this is thinking outside the box. I mean, George is collaborating, right? Because he—it's he, not just his ideas he wants. He wants everybody's ideas, right? Because he can't think of everything. 
right? And there are other people who are much better at, him <laughs> at many things than he is, right? And so, you know, in a very democratic way, um, he he says, well, what do you think? And this is um, often the way that he would work with uh, with the artists. I mean, Doug Chang and Ryan and, uh, and many other people on the ranch, just, not just artists. Um, uh, and the ILM people were telling me, well, you know, the best working experience I ever had was with George because George would just like give like these trigger words or trigger ideas and their imaginations would go off, right? And they would find, you know, they would come back with something. They would show George and George says, well, this is great. Can't use it, but it's great. Yeah. And, but, but there is something here. Right. And so we give another sort of trigger word or idea and lead them off onto a, another path. Right. And so they're having like complete freedom for a week or two weeks in order to explore. Right. In order to to bring some of their creativity. Right. And the best of themselves into the project. And, um, you know, and then sometimes, you know, they score a hit a home run. They get a fabuloso stamp. Right, and they go woohoo, and then and then they've got to do it all again next week. So, um, but but that's a great collaborative way of working. So even though we talk, you know, I mean, obviously within the books, I talk, um, I want because George is the person who makes the decisions ultimately. Um, he says whether something goes in or not, or whether it fits or doesn't fit, um. There is a lot of collaboration in there, and so that's yes. even like part of the journey in there. So I think um, perhaps there are I included a few more voices in this um, uh, in this book than the previous book, um, because I, I really felt that this was uh, um, the idea of the technology and the developments in the technology and the developments in um, concept art, etc. Uh, and the whole production method in editing, non-linear uh, editing, in the cameras, uh, digital cameras, uh, all these aspects of, uh, in the sound as well, with digital uh, sound. So in all these aspects of, of making uh, movies had all been developed and throughout the, the, the trilogy. Um, and, and so that's why we need so so many of these other voices in the book. Well, and it was really interesting to me because, you know, uh, as I'm looking through all this art, you know, that they're using, it's fascinating to me because so much of it shows up in places like the Clone Wars, uh, specifically, sure. uh, you know, yeah. especially a lot of that episode three uh, with the planets that they didn't use. Um, exactly. And thinking all these ideas, George will use those later. And I think that's one of the beauties of, of George. He doesn't throw anything away because no ideas are necessarily bad. They just might not fit with what he needs at that moment. Well, there are bad ideas. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there are there are some ideas that George will cling on to. I thought it was really funny that there were uh, a couple of Joe Johnson's ideas for um, uh, from the original trilogy, mm -hmm. uh, George had kept on to yeah. to be used in uh, in this trilogy, so in Ep three. So um, and uh, yeah, so there there are some ideas. There are good and bad ideas, 
And uh, if George thinks that that idea is good, he will try and um, mm -hmm. include it. Um, or it doesn't mean that every idea ever come up with is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things, too, that this book did for me, just a couple of things I'm thinking of as, as we look to, to wrap up. Uh, one of the things sure. I really appreciated um, you uh, the interviews with Hayden. You know, Hayden has had a, a love-hate relationship with fans in the sense that fans have had that with him. You know, I, I don't mm -hmm. think he's ever had that. Um, and from what I've seen, he's nothing but the loveliest of persons. Uh, and I appreciate his performance so much. But what I loved is, is that getting into his head and his psyche of what he's thinking about Star Wars allowed me to see how deeply he was thinking about the character of Anakin. And that's something that I don't think that anybody's really given him the place to do. And this book really helped, I think, bring that to life is just, I mean, we know, you know, Ewan and his, his thoughts on Star Wars, he's been very vocal about that, but Hayden's much more reserved. And so finally getting a chance to see that he was putting such a thought into how he's playing this character. Um, and he has some great thoughts about the character and Star Wars itself uh, as well. I really appreciated that we got that opportunity to, to finally get into a, a little more of Hayden's thought process as he's playing Anakin Skywalker. Well, I think that um, generally within the books, I mean, if you have a look at the books, I mean, I, there, is, there is no uh, opinion from me, okay? So there's, there's no point at which I um, make any value judgments on, on, on anything. And what I'm, because what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the people who are there. I want the book to feel as though it's in the present tense, as though you are there, right, uh, hearing these people's thoughts as they are creating or performing or messing up or, you know, um, um, or, or suddenly getting those, you know, eureka moments. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, explore the process and unfortunately a lot of the time a lot of the interviews that people do they're generally they're like pr interviews right and so uh, part of this process was to not just do uh, a few new interviews but to uh, to go back into the old interviews uh, that existed the thousands upon thousands of them <laughs> that have been done and um, and to find those nuggets um, that show people working and thinking um, and trying to understand why they're doing something. And so it's the same with, um, with Hayden and Natalie. Uh, Rob Coleman um, has some great um, uh, quotes from him. John Knoll, Fred Mayers. Um, the, the, there's lots of, there are, uh, I mean, I could go on. I don't want to list everybody because the, the credits are very long, um, but but the but the crux of the matter is that what we're trying to show here is how people think, right, and also just how committed everybody was. Yes, I mean, um, Rick McCallum uh, at one point uh, talks about the whittling process of making uh, of making movies, in that uh, they did a lot of the. A lot of the things that they did on Young Indy or Young Indiana Jones, the, the series, it's come, gone under several different uh, titles. Um, 
But the but the things that they did in, in that, and the team that they put together on that, is essentially the team that they brought onto um, this this series, because they built a team that could work together, that was completely committed, that they knew that if there was a sandstorm, a storm, something didn't arrive, um, uh, there was a last-minute idea, this team, um, you know, the prop people, the set people, um, the, the makeup, everybody, you know, the camera team, they knew how to act uh, and work together as a team last minute in order to get this thing done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and really that's, that's what it's about, you know, so that each of them are thinking at this level, you know, and I think it's great to find those quotes and um, uh, to show that people do think, you know, that people do take this extremely seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I so agree. And, and I think that's the beauty of both of these books, but especially this one, again, as we talked about at the very beginning, you know, the prequels are something that haven't really had this exploration done of them. Um, and it was uh, one of the excitements of this book, and, and it's part of it. I love the prequel trilogy, and so to be able yeah. to finally get to dive in the way I'd always wanted to, you know, obviously um, before the original Star Wars archives had come out, we'd had Rinsler's books on the original sure. trilogy, so we'd had so sure. a wealth of information, but this is finally giving us that for the prequel trilogy, and I, I wanted to... I wanted to say, look, there. I, Paul and I could probably sit here for hours upon hours because there's so much that we could talk about. And, and I, I, I want this interview to be a thing where people want to go get the book. So I don't want to give everything away um, with all of the detail that we get to go into. But one of the things that obviously has made a splash uh, was the end of the book where George talks about selling Di uh, to Disney as well as sure. his own ideas for what he, where he would have gone. Um, sure. And so I just wanted to kind of wrap up uh, us talking with that because you mentioned earlier how George is a person where word matters and loyalty matters. Yeah. Um, and I think that that really kind of comes through, even though George doesn't go into great detail of why he sold or what his... Um, and he, I mean, he went into more detail than I thought he was going to about his, his sequels... Um, sure. Uh, me too. I have to say that that was that was completely unexpected. And uh, if if you read, um, you see, normally when I do the uh, uh, when I do an interviews like this, and obviously, I mean, I taught for the two books. I taught to George for five days in total. Right. You know, over several years. You know, just one day every now and again. And um, and the way. It, the way it started was George said, well, uh, well, Paul, um, you know, I want a conversation. All right. So we didn't want a Q&A. We wanted to actually talk about something because otherwise it's, it's boring. Um, and so um, and so we would go back and forth. And often we would meander into areas that had nothing to do with Star Wars. <laughs> All right. So... Um, you know, because that, that was naturally the way that, that's the way conversations go. You know, uh, we're talking about Star Wars because we have to. Okay. <laughs> you and I. Um, but the, um, 
but no, but, but within the context, it was it was it was really good. So often, um, you know, you would latch onto something, uh, and then on another day, you you go back, and then you find some of the same stories or concerns, but perhaps approach from a different way. Right now, when I'm editing the book and editing the text. I'm presenting and editing the text in a very specific way, in a very controlled way, if you like. Right. Um, but what happened was that for, for that end, you know, uh, which is right at the end of the book where George talks about yeah. the sequels, it didn't actually happen. It happened in a very weird way in that I, I was talking about the, um, uh, the stormtroopers. Right. Uh, George was saying that he was very unhappy that the, um, that he actually killed some people in Star Wars. Yeah, that was such a right. fascinating conversation. And uh, I thought, well, what do you mean? It, you know, he killed tons of stormtroopers. Yeah, but 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 they're not people. He says, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? So, well, what do you think they were? You know. So, and then he started talking about stormtroopers, and then he says, oh yeah, and my idea for the, you know, for the sequel was that the stormtroopers were blah blah blah. And I'm going, we're talking about the sequels now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was like I sort of froze at that moment. And, um, because I, I really wasn't expecting him to be, to be talking about that. And, um, I, and really it's sort of, I just let him, I, I, I thought, is this, are we really going to include this in the book? You know, it was sort of like one of those sort of, uh, sort of things. But, but I think that, um, these are still uh, ideas uh, in his head now, you know, that he still um, he still sees what's going on, etc. And, um, and they're still there. But um, but his life has has moved on. He's doing the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Have you have you had a look at the website? For yeah, them? I, I mean, I it's something that, you know, obviously being somebody who's a big fan of, of Lucas in general, I, I really want to be able to go to the Lucas Museum and, and be able to experience it one day. Uh, and I really appreciate that you know he's taking this interest in and again it's it's preservation of things that he feels like should be preserved and, and to be made available to the public. So it's his own collection of, of work which he's donating, you know, for free, you know, to to the world. Effectively, um, so um, which I think is 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 incredible, um, but these are, if you like, he's he's moved on. You know, this is something that he's always wanted to do, and again, it's part of his his vision for um, for the world and the way that we tell stories. And it goes back to uh, Joseph Campbell uh, and the idea of the uh, the hero of a thousand faces, uh, the monomyth. Um, and these are all ideas that he had um, uh, uh, he had got from when he had gone to college, you know, before he was interested in films, right. you know, when he was more interested in uh, before he was interested in films, he was interested in photography. Before photography, he was interested in drawing and art, you know. So, um, uh, you know, and it's that point at which he's he's learning about the the monument. So that I think that um, the, the museum, the way I see it, this is a, if you like, a culmination of all his research 
you know, um, throughout his life, you know, that he wants to to share with people. And, you know, and these two books are a, a culmination of the research that I found in his archives, you know, that I'm, uh, I hope, you know, I want to share with people because I think they're interesting. And uh, I hope people will find interesting as well. Yeah, I no, I completely agree with you. And, and I, what I really appreciate uh, is, is the fact that these, these books have done, I think, a fantastic job of bringing together you know, uh, George's uh, thought process and, and his world to life uh, in a way, um, you know, for his six films, you know, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm just beyond grateful to, to be able to have had the time to, to not only read them, but, but be able to talk to you about your process of writing. And, uh, you know, um, I, this, I couldn't have asked for a, a better book, you know, uh, about uh, one of my favorite parts of film, which is the prequel trilogy. And so um, I'm, I'm super excited to see. I know you've got like uh, the the uh, the Bond edition that's hopefully going to be coming out next year, which I'm I'm very excited to get a hold of uh, because uh, you know you're you're all the way through now the the Craig era in that yeah. and so um i wanted to give you an opportunity you know before we left to, to let people know where they can find you online and what projects you know you have coming up that you would like them to to be able to to take a look at here in the future well the, the problem is i've got um uh, i've always got some a million things that um, <laughs> i've like i've either done um uh yeah and out there i mean if you go onto my amazon page you can find it um you know, all the books I've done in the past. Uh, I also do videos on YouTube. If you look for Wordsmith um, and Kirscht, K-E-R-S-H-E-D. Um, and that's also my Twitter. Um, so I, I tweet about Star Wars and my other interests in life um, uh, about that. I have, um, as well as these, um, uh, this uh, Star Wars, the two Star Wars books that are out now, I've also got, um, there's a book on photography of uh, the Godfather trilogy oh, wow. uh, that's just come out, which is uh, which is great. The f- photography of Steve Shapiro, uh, I edited that. Uh, I've got the James Bond book, as you, as you mentioned, coming up when the new Bond movie comes out. And uh, for that, I was very lucky to be uh, on set and oh, to wow. interview everybody. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Carrie Fukunaga, the director and co-writer. Uh, as well as um, uh, Mr. Bond himself, I interviewed, which was great, uh, and many other people behind the scenes as well, um, uh, cinematographers and production designers, etc. It's brilliant, um, uh, and I'm very excited about this movie. Um, I can't say why, but I, I can tell you, having having you know uh, read and seen what I've read and seen, I, I can tell people are in for a really great ride on that movie. And, um, yeah, and beyond that, I mean, I do a lot of uh, personal projects. So I've, uh, I've been researching the work of an, uh, an old sports writer, also short, uh, short story writer, Damon Runyon. I don't know if you've seen Guys and Dolls. That was based yes, on. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, I grew yeah, up yeah, in all that, those old musicals. Based, so absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Guys and Dolls was based on his Broadway uh, stories um, from the 30s onwards. But, um, Previous to that, he was a sports writer. He was one of the leading sports reporters 
uh, in America. Wow. And uh, and I came across um, his reports. He interviewed and was uh, and followed Jack Dempsey, um, the the boxer, heavyweight world heavyweight uh, champion, who defeated uh, Jess Willard in 1919. And um, uh, and I've put together some books on uh, on those uh, on those reports, which I I sell through through Amazon, um, you know, self-publish, and um, and also I self-publish some of my own uh, writing on film, etc. Through that as well. So, awesome. um, I've I've got lots of things coming up that I can't talk about. So, <laughs> uh, it's just best to keep um, keep a handle on what I've what I've got on Twitter, um, and then I'll what do you call it? And I'll update on a daily basis. Oh, that's great. Well, I personally, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, uh, to be able to get a copy of, of the, the Bond book, uh, and uh, we'll have to I'll have to interview uh, you for my other podcast on that one, just because I, okay. I'm a huge Bond fan, and I have been looking forward to No Time to Die uh, for a very long time, and uh, I just yeah. hope it does not get pushed back again, because I am ready to see this movie uh, and, and, and to see the culmination of Craig, but uh, Paul, thank you so much for for joining us and and just uh, for allowing us to have your time and and your thought process on on creating these incredible Star Wars books. And I highly encourage everybody to to get a copy because uh, it's it's the ultimate gift for any Star Wars fan, I believe. And so, um, but thank you so much for uh, you know spending time with us to talk about uh, your journey through uh, Star Wars archives. Night- 1999 through 2005. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I've really enjoyed it. I love making the book. I can't tell you how excited <laughs> I was to make the book. And um, and uh, and I um, right from the beginning, I thought people will see the films in a new way once once I finish this, and and that's really my hope for the book. Um, so I hope everybody goes out and uh, and buys it, and then. Um, uh, and watches the films again afterwards um, with, with new eyes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paul. All right. You take care. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.